Um, we have a pretty big section of Exodus to get through today, so I'm going to jump right into it, but I'll just say a prayer for us first. God, we thank you uh, for this time to be together. We thank you for this time to look at your word. God, we ask that as we read this story uh, and try to understand what the message was to the original people hearing it, God, that you would help us by your spirit to, uh, to learn uh, the wisdom that is in there and to be able to apply it to our lives today. Uh, God, give me uh, the, the words I need to speak and, uh, and give us all ears to hear what you're trying to teach us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're taking notes, uh, the title of the sermon today is Please Send Someone Else. It's page 47. If you're following along in one of those Bibles around the room, uh, if you're following along in your own Bible, I don't know what page it is. You'll have to figure it out yourself. Um, but you can also follow along in the Bible app if you want to get that out and just punch in Exodus chapter 4. That slide didn't get updated, but that's okay. All right, so the title is Please Send Someone Else. The main point for today is this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Uh, what God calls you to do, he will equip you to do. What God calls you to do, he will equip you to do. And really, I hope you see by the end that when God calls you beyond your abilities, it's because he's going to give to you out of his limitless, infinite abilities. That's the great story we get to see here and a whole lot of God's patience and you'll see that as we pick it up section one verses one through 17 we're going to call objections and concessions this really warrants a little bit of a recap from last week which hopefully isn't redundant if you were here last week in this story but remember the scene because the scene is really important this isn't just Moses having a conversation with God this is starting at that burning bush, right? The bush that's burned but never consumed. The, the presence of God speaking to Moses out of it. Moses is hiding his face. He's trembling while God gives him this incredible calling. And it's a calling that we know at least somewhere is deep in Moses' heart because it's a calling to go do the thing that Moses wanted to do, and that was to liberate his people. Remember, he was so filled with moral outrage at seeing an Egyptian beating one of the Israelite people that he killed this guy and had to flee Egypt. He was so consumed by that, and now God is saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to work with me to, flee, uh, to free my people. But just like Aaron pointed out last week, when God calls people, he calls them out of dark places, and he calls them to do hard things. And Moses is in a really, really dark place. And that thing that he's being called to do is a really, really hard thing. And he knows already that he's not the hero his people need. He tried to be the hero. He tried to do it his own way, on his own strength, and he screwed everything up. And now he's not even there with his people. And so God is not calling Moses because of what Moses can do. God is calling Moses to show what only God can do. And so we called this section 1 through 17, Objections and Concessions, but really Moses' objections, they start back at last week in chapter 3. You might remember Moses' first objection when God calls him is to say, but God, who am I? <laughs> and God doesn't even really answer. He says, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's who you are. You are the guy that I'm with, right? And he says, okay, well, I have another objection. Who are you? <laughs> and he says, I am who I am, that wonderful name we looked at, Yahweh, the God who is. God is, I am, 
and Moses is who I am with. And wouldn't it be great if that was enough? And Moses said, cool, let's do this. But alas, we come to chapter four. Chapter four starts like this. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord there being Yahweh, right? Remember we see the Lord in all caps like that. It says Yahweh. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And God gives him two other signs to show that God really did appear to him. He can put his hand in his cloak and bring it out and it's all diseased. Your Bible might say leprous. Uh, That's really not what we know as leprosy, Hansen's disease. No offense, Hansen's. Uh, That's not really, that's not a symptom of it, but when you see that word leprous, it's like some sort of infectious skin disease, right? He puts it back in his cloak, he pulls it out, and it's healed again, right? God tells him he can go to the Nile, pull some water, drop it on the ground, and it'll turn to blood. But Moses says to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. And if you read on, you'll see this frustrated God patiently make arrangements for Moses' brother Aaron to come and to help him. So objection three, right at the beginning there, was what? It was no one is going to believe me. You're talking to me, right? But no one is going to believe me. And we see that the God who calls you also equips you. God says, what's that in your hand? A staff? I can work with that. Throw that thing on the ground. And it turns into a snake and Moses just bolts out of there, right? It's kind of a funny scene when you think about it. This burning bush, he's trembling and he's like, snake, and just runs. And God's like, chill, chill for one second. I'm trying to talk to you. Just reach out your hand, pick it back up. It's a staff again, right? And maybe some of you who aren't snake people are like, I get it. It would take me a second to calm down too. Uh, But God says, I'm giving you these signs. I'm giving you a number of signs. He's got a pretty cool bag of tricks by the end of this. And for the people, I want them to know that I am, I am Yahweh. I'm the God of those fathers, the God of all the covenants, the God of their past, the God of their present, the God of their future. You haven't known me by name, but you will know that I am by the end of this. And of these three signs that God gives to Moses, this is actually the only one that he does perform in front of Pharaoh. And really it Probably it's because it contains the most rich imagery for both the Israelites and for Egypt, the staff being the symbol of authority. And there were several snake gods in Egyptian culture, uh, including probably the most prominent one, this cobra goddess Wajet. And this is the goddess of the Nile Delta. This is a god who, among other things, came to be the fiercely aggressive protector of all royalty. And you can find pictures of pharaohs, and maybe you can picture them in your head, these great headpieces, these crowns with this coiled up serpent on the front of the crown. 
In Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh was the physical embodiment of divinity on earth. He was a god himself. The prophet Ezekiel later even refers to Pharaoh as the great sea serpent lying in the river, saying, I made this river. It's my own river. The snake itself is a symbol of sovereignty and divine authority in Egypt. And of course, we think of the Israelites, right? The Exodus 1, it tells us, like literally mimicking the words from Genesis, that they were fruitful and they multiplied. The exact command given to Adam and Eve in the garden, but a serpent's scheme tricks them there, right? And puts an end to that fruitful and multiply. And now they're being fruitful and multiply in Egypt, and a serpent plots against them again, scheming ways to destroy these people. And it's hard to say how much of that symbolism would have been readily apparent to the people that are experiencing these miracles, but for sure it would have been in view for the audience that the story was intended to be given to. The symbolism is clear. Yahweh, the capital G God, is the true authority. He's stronger, he's truer, he's more real than any of these so-called gods that are oppressing his people. We can see this symbolism really on full display, spoiler alert, because this is coming later in the story, but Aaron does this sign before Pharaoh, he throws it down, it becomes a snake, and Pharaoh says, I have some people who can do stuff like that, and they come, and they make the snakes, but Aaron swallows all of theirs up before being picked up in authority again. Those other two signs, they're only shown to the people of Israel, the hand going from diseased to healed, the Nile water being dumped on the ground, turning to blood. These would have been richly significant for really anyone seeing them. The God who calls himself Yahweh is the same God who's been the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who has heard you and seen your affliction, the God who knows. This is the God that heals. This is the God of water and blood. This is the God of life and death itself. And I'd love to say that those images and those signs were enough for Moses. But then comes objection number four from Moses. If you look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I love this little part. Moses, he's like, I'm not good at speaking. I'm not good at speaking in the past. I'm not good at speaking in the future. I'm not good at speaking right now in front of you. Some have taken that to be actually a, a critique of God. I'm not good even since you have spoken. And since you have spoken to me and given me this task, you should have enabled me to speak when you did it. But even right now, I'm still slow of speech and tongue right here. The literal translation of that phrase uh, in Hebrew is that he has a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue. And man, when I read that, I'm like, I relate to that. I don't know if I can describe the burden that I have carrying this mouth of mine around with me every single day. You know, my, my mouth often feels like such a burden. We don't know what Moses' burden was, right? Was it a speech impediment? Was he just slow at talking? Did he mess his words up? We can't say for sure, but my mouth often feels like a burden. I say things I shouldn't say all the time. And then there's other times where I want to say things. I want maybe to share the gospel with someone, maybe to share an important truth with someone, and my tongue just feels heavy, and my mouth won't move 
And if you've felt like that, like I have, God is asking us probably the same question he would ask Moses here. Who gave you that mouth? It literally says, who set the mouth in a person? And it's God. Yahweh did it. I give people their abilities. I gave you, Moses, your ability. I know how you can speak, and I'm still calling you to go and to speak. It feels a lot like what we see later in the Bible with the prophet Jeremiah. He's got some objections to being called to go and to speak. Jeremiah 1, 6 through 9, it says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So whether you're ineloquent or inexperienced, God has wiped out those excuses. You can still speak God's truth. To the people around you. And maybe you're thinking, these are two prophets in the Old Testament. And it's true, these are things that God said to two prophets in the Old Testament. But let's look ahead. Here's the advice that Jesus gives right to his disciples. Matthew 10, 19 through 20, it says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your father speaking through you. Your mouth probably is the biggest, heaviest burden when you think you have to come up with all the right things to say yourself. When you think it's up to you to be the clever one, to figure out how to just change the right few things around to make this message a little more palatable for the people around me. This is echoed again in Luke 21, 13 through 15. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle, in their, settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Who makes the mouth? Yahweh. And here, Jesus, God with us, says, I will give you a mouth and the wisdom that needs to come out of that mouth. So when you're called to go, like we have been, when you're called to make disciples like we have been, to baptize and to teach everything that he commanded us, it's not because we are clever, it's because God has given us pages and pages and pages of his words to share with others. And so God is asking Moses really to do what he's asking all of us to do. I made your mouth, now just use it for me. And wouldn't it be great if that was enough? Wouldn't it be great if that was enough for all of us? But wouldn't it be great if that was enough for Moses? Ironically, this guy with this big, heavy mouth has something else to say to God. He has another objection. Objection five. We find it here in verse 13. Actually, this one's not even really an objection with any excuse. It's just, God, please send someone else. Just please send someone else. You answered everything I said, but I'm just saying, please send someone else. And that's really the, the meaning uh, of what's translated here. But Moses actually uses this kind of polite turn of phrase. What he literally says is, send by the hand whom you will send. <laughs> send by the hand whom you will send. And God is obviously angry with him. It tells us right there. And he's saying, I am. <laughs> I'm sending whom I will send. I'm sending you. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Send whoever you want. Yeah, you. No, yeah, okay, cool. Go ahead. 
you know? And it's this funny, weird, like confusing, God's angry, and, and I'm sending the guy who I want to send. I'm not sending someone else. But again, God even makes a concession here for this stubborn dude. He says, presumably, through clenched jaw and gritted teeth, you have a brother, Aaron, the Levite, right? Uh, he says, I'll speak to you. Uh, you speak to him, and, and he will speak for you. I'll be with both your mouths. I'll teach you both what to do. And there's this phrase in there. It says, you will be as God to him. I don't know if that threw any of you when you were reading this uh, last week, but it's just saying your arrangement with him will be like my arrangement with you. Tell him what to speak. He speaks it. None of the other aspects of God apply to Moses. He isn't to be worshiped or treated like a God in any other way outside of that specific agreement with him. But it was pointed out to me that sometimes we might look at this and say, like, what a nice gift. God hooked him up, right? God said, hey, I'll bring your brother along. You and your brother can go on this cool adventure. Just like, I mean, I'd be thrilled if God had my brother come and help me with my ministry. I think that'd be awesome, right? And just like I would love that, it, we think of that when we read this story, right? But really, this is actually the first concession that God gives to Moses where it says he's angry. He's mad about this. This really is a demotion for Moses, right? Moses could have had this place of honor. Not that Moses was seeking a place of honor, but God was going to freely give him this place of honor, do this incredible work through him. But because he was unable or most likely just unwilling to do it, God just has to send someone else. And now Moses takes a back seat. He tells someone else what to do, and that person takes the place of honor. And it actually, we'll see later, Aaron's kind of a pain every once in a while. This is probably not the best situation, although God's sovereign, and we see God calling Aaron too. But the point here, really, is that this is kind of the first priestly act of Aaron. The first priestly duty is given as a concession to Moses' inability or refusal to represent God himself. And so Aaron will represent God to the people on Moses' behalf, right? A priest, the intermediary. That's how that first priest took his duties. And that's the end of that section of objections and concessions. You can see how through it all, what God called Moses to do, he was going to equip Moses to do, perhaps even equipped Moses beyond what he needed, but gave him what Moses felt like he needed. Even when Moses angered God, he was gracious and he was kind and he gave Moses what he needed. And so we're going to move pretty quickly through the next two sections. Section 2, verses 18 through 26, we say, maybe still send someone else? <laughs> and it's going to get weird. I'm just going to warn you, we're going to get real weird, um, but bear with me. I think Aaron kind of planned his vacation really uh, strategically to leave me with Exodus 4. The two weirdest verses, most unexplainable verses in all of Moses' life are going to be here in this section. But let's just jump into it. Verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. 
I'll point out just a couple of things there. This seems to be maybe another case of Moses bringing his big heavy mouth along with him because you might notice Moses lied to his father-in-law, right? That's not why he's going back to Egypt, but for some reason he makes up something else to tell his father-in-law. And the story doesn't really give us clues as to why. Did he have an agreement when he got married to stay for a certain amount of time? But what I think we see here is that Moses has gotten pretty comfy in his new Midianite culture. And he doesn't want to really burn any bridges. He doesn't want to seem like the weirdo who's believing in this foreign God and off on this mission just in case he gets to kind of stay around and keep his comfy life in that culture. And another section of the story will kind of point us to that as well. The other thing, we've seen this already in Moses' story, that there's these parallels that pop up to the life of Christ. And this one was just kind of too obvious to just pass by quickly. There seems to be a a parallel to the Holy Family that sets on a donkey to go on a journey. And they fled to Egypt when they heard that people were setting out to kill the infant child Jesus. And they got a message from God that the people seeking to kill him were gone and it was safe to go back and they did. And then Moses, he fled away from Egypt and God tells him the people who wanted to kill you are dead and you can go back. So there's that. I don't know, do with it, <laughs> do with it what you will. But if you've been tracing this theme that Jesus is this newer, better fulfillment of everything God was trying to do through Moses. If you've been tracing that theme through the story, there's another one for you to take note of. Also in this section, another hard thing in the Bible, this is the first time it's mentioned that God will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not let them out of the land. And again, kind of a hard one to just breeze by without mentioning it. I'm sure we'll get a much fuller treatment by Aaron later in this series when we look at the 10 plagues. Uh, But I'll set that up a little bit by saying just this. As modern readers, we look at this and we say, that's not fair though. God can't harden someone's heart and then punish them for having them, punish them for having a hard heart. But that's really a, a pretty narrow view of the story. It's pretty individualistic thinking that makes sense to us. doesn't really make sense in the context of this story. We already saw, for one, in the last chapter that God said he knew Pharaoh would not let his people go. I'm going to send you, you tell him this, and I already know he's not going to let his people go. And in the next chapter, when they come and they bring this message from this God called Yahweh, Pharaoh's response is, I don't know Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I would ever listen to him? I don't know a Yahweh. And remember, Pharaoh is this physical embodiment of the gods in Egypt. So what we're actually saying is this God is saying, I don't know other gods that would have any authority over where I'm the God, right? It's a showdown between gods. There's this Egyptian fake God, and then there's the God Yahweh, whose name has to be great in the land because he's got a plan for all people to come to him and to find salvation through him someday. And so it might make us feel a little uncomfortable, the idea that God might act in a way that speeds the destruction of a person or the destruction of a nation. That might make us uncomfortable, but it was an act to preserve the way in which all peoples could be welcomed into the family of God. And so it's a big topic. It's a great one to wrestle with. I'm sure we'll wrestle with it more, but I'm not going to go much further on that or this will be a really long morning. 
And so that brings us to that fun part some of you might have been waiting for. The strangest two verses in the story of Moses' life. It's verse 24. It says, At a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Weird, <laughs> right? It's not clear. There's all these hymns in there. It's not always totally clear who the hymn is referring to. Is, is God seeking to put Moses to death? Is God seeking to put his son to death, possibly? It seems most likely that he's going to put Moses to death. But if that's really the most likely, why would God seek to kill this? He just made a really cool plan with this guy. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to kill him. And he was so patient with him a moment ago, right? It's a strange, strange story. Also, what does seek to kill even mean? What is the scenario where God wants to kill someone but can't just strike them dead, right? He's trying to kill him, but somehow it's taking so long that Zipporah can figure out a way to save him before God finishes the job. This is a weird, weird story. It's so strange. Literally, no one knows what it really means. We don't even actually know specifically what this phrase, bridegroom of blood, means. Like, we know what each of those words mean, but why'd she combine it like that and repeat it like it was significant? People will be like, well, Jesus is the bridegroom of blood to the church. And you could probably do that, but I don't think that's really what's being said here. And here's what makes the most sense to me, right? I've done some research, read some commentaries, looked at some other scholars' research. Here's what makes the most sense to me. This is borrowing from a few people and some of my own thoughts. Moses, like we said before, is so invested in his new culture, right? He fled his people. He's there in Midian, and he's gotten really, really comfortable, right? He loves this new culture, And so because of that, he hasn't obeyed God in even giving the sign of the covenant with God, the circumcision to his son. And so God is going to punish him. And this phrase, sought to kill, they say maybe it's a little anthropomorphizing. Maybe it's a kind of a turn of phrase. God seeks to kill him means like he's been struck with a terrible illness. And a lot of scholars think that. I think that makes sense to me. He's come down with this terrible, terrible illness. And it is a punishment from God for his sin. And Zipporah knows or finds out that Moses has disobeyed God in this way. And as we've seen great women come to the rescue in this story a bunch of times already, uh, she fulfills the command on Moses' behalf, the thing he should have done, the sin he committed. And she says, I'm going to take care of it. She circumcises the son. She touches Moses with it. And, and then this weird phrase, you're a bridegroom of blood to me, I think is like, this bloody husband of mine, <laughs> right? This husband of horrors, this guy, this bridegroom of blood. I had to do this terrible thing that I didn't want to do in the first place. I'm not an Israelite. And now you put me in this situation, right? Rob suggested that maybe as we, as we read this, we should all ask ourselves, what's the foreskin in your life? But I was thinking about it, Rob, and like that, I don't know, this just feels inappropriate. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that. But on a more serious note, it does lead us to conclude that even when we're called by God, right? Even when we're equipped by God, even when maybe we're living out that calling that God has for us, we can't just harbor unrepentant sin hidden away in some other part of our life. Sin in any part of our lives affects the way that we live out our calling in the world. We can't have a great ministry and have unrepentant sin 
in some other part of our lives and think that everything is just going to be fine. Maybe we can see that in this story. And so the last section, section three, these are verses uh, 27 to 31. We're going to call this So It Begins. Really, the story that's going to unfold over these next chapters, the story of the liberation of the people of, of God begins right here. God calls Aaron. Maybe God already had called Aaron and he was on his way. We don't know. God is divine. He's sovereign and he knows what he's going to do and he brings Aaron along and it happens just as he said. Aaron does come and Moses does share everything God told him and they're joyful. They greet each other. Aaron is on board. They gather the elders of Israel. They perform the signs and Israel is overjoyed. This God they've heard about their whole lives is finally given them a name, an intimate name that they can know and knowing the name Yahweh is going to become synonymous with believing and trusting in the name Yahweh. As we'll see as the Bible goes on, to know Yahweh is to trust in Yahweh. If you believe in Yahweh, you trust him and you know him and he knows you. Right? And so verse 31 has these really uh, hopeful and beautiful verse. It says, the people believed and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Finally, God is taking notice. Yahweh is their God and their journey out of Egypt is just beginning. You might remember the main point for today was that the God, what God calls you to do, he will equip you to do. And I wonder, as we reflect on that, if you notice something back in verse 20. If you look there, it says, Moses took the staff of God in his hand as he went on his journey. But at the beginning of the story, this was Moses' staff, right? This is something Moses already had, and now it's become the staff of God. Just like God often takes our gifts and he gives them back to us to use in a miraculous way. Do you just have hands? God takes his hands and he does something that no one could have imagined with them. God takes the resources around him and he does incredible things with those resources. And it makes me curious what ordinary aspects of your life might God want to take from you in order to give it back to you in this all kind of supercharged up way to use for his glory? That's a question worth pondering for any of us. What are your natural gifts? What things do you have? And what might God do with them if you said, you know what, this is yours, fully yours. You do with it what you want. Because as we saw here, when God calls you beyond your ability, it's because he has limitless resources. He has limitless abilities that he wants to give to you so that it's his glory. And lastly, we always, always look forward from this story in Exodus to Jesus. Eventually, God did send someone else. And this time, it wasn't just to crush whatever latest serpent was up against God's people. Jesus came to crush the serpent of sin and death once and for all. But this time, he didn't do it just by victoriously overpowering a nation. How did he do it? He let sin and death crush him. It looked like the serpent had won, but what we saw was really, it was just a bruise on his heel because he rose in victory and he crushed the serpent. And because he took our death and because he came back from that death, he now represents us 
to God as people right with God. And just like Aaron became the person who could represent God on Moses' behalf, Jesus lets us represent him in the world on his behalf. It's an incredible calling that has been given to each of our lives. And we're going to enter a time of communion in just a second. When the ushers pass the communion, you could take it and hold on to it. Rob's going to uh, direct us a little more in that. But as you do, this is a great time to reflect on a few things. This is a great time to reflect on what areas of your life do you have unrepentant sin that you need to repent of. This is a great time to reflect on what things God has called you to do. This is a great time to reflect on what gifts and natural abilities are in your life that God might be calling you to use beyond what you think you could use it for. If you haven't yet committed your life to Jesus, don't take communion. Just kind of pass the plate by. But this is still a wonderful time to reflect on what if this story was true in my life? What if I answered that calling? What if I became the type of person that Jesus was going to use in the world to further his name and to bring him glory? Pray with me and we'll close. God, we thank you for your plan. (laughs) And we thank you for your patience. You're long-suffering, just like many of us have big, heavy mouths we carry around with us, just like many of us argue with you when we know the right thing to do, just like many of us, you know, leave sin festering somewhere in our lives when we think we're really kind of living out what you want us to do. God, we thank you for your patience. Lord, please help us to take what we've read today, to think about it, to really let it sink deep into our hearts. And God, we ask that you would use us however you see fit. God, that you would give us wisdom to know which way you're leading us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.